Peter Tuckman, also known as the Einstein of Wall Street, has always appeared as a very charismatic, humorous, and inspirational trader on social media. However, we tend to forget that this man is just like everyone else. He's also a son, a father, and a husband. It is truly my honor to have Peter on the Humble Traders podcast today to share the story of his life. You're going to learn about his family background, education, and early career. How did Peter become the Einstein of Wall Street and the impact it had on his life? And finally, you're going to learn about a day in his life, especially outside of the stock market. This is a very special video to me, and I would really encourage you to share it with your friends. You're about to hear the untold story of Peter Tuckman, the Einstein of Wall Street. So Peter, welcome to the Humble Traders podcast. My pleasure. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, so a lot of people... I'm humbled to Oh, be you're here. also a humble trader. There you go. Um, a lot of people know you as, the, you know, obviously the most famous trader and broker on Wall Street, uh, specifically New York Stock Exchange, but not a lot of people know about how you got here, right? Like, who's the Peter before uh, you became, you know, the, the most famous trader? So I kind of want to ask you, you know, what, what's your background? What's your family background like? What did you study um, before, before you got here? Absolutely. It's my pleasure to answer the question because it's been an amazing journey. I'm really, uh, my life has been unusual and incredibly exciting and full of successes and failures. And I think it's super important for people to know that, right? They look at somebody who's successful perhaps and think that it's just been an easy road all along. And that's definitely not the case. So I, uh, I grew up in New York City. My parents are Holocaust survivors. So they came into America in 1949 after spending oh. four years in prison in Auschwitz, the worst concentration camp in the world. And most lost about 90% of their uh, family were murdered during the war. And um, they met in a uh, displaced persons camp after the war. My father survived with his father his mother was murdered in front of him by a Gestapo, and my mother lost almost 80, 85% of her family were killed uh, by the Nazis during the war. They met in a displaced persons camp after the war. When, uh, when the war was over, they were liberated by the Russians and the uh, English and the, and the Americans, mm -hmm. and they were put in camps to be sort of filed around to be, dis uh, to be taken to different countries around the world. And uh, they met, they fell in love, love at first sight. My father was actually on a going, my father was in medical school in Heidelberg, as was my mother, and he was set up on a blind date with my mother's roommate. And she came home late from work that day, and my father went to the house for the date. My mother opened the door, and they looked at each other, and they fell in love uh, oh immediately. So that's a beautiful part of the story. Yeah. They spent the next three years in Germany uh, studying to become doctors, both of them. And then in 1949, they were lucky enough to get on a boat uh, to the United States. It uh, was not an easy thing to do. Not a lot of people. People were into South America. Some went to Israel. Some went to different parts of Europe. But they were able to come to America. And... Um, so I, you know, my father became a doctor, ended up becoming quite a well-known doctor. My mother dropped out of medical school to start a family. Yeah. And so uh, I was born in New York City. And uh, so I grew up with a, in a very somewhat privileged background. My parents, my father was successful. We had everything we always wanted to have. We were not rich by any means, but we had everything we needed. 
And there were certain things that were very important to them. Family was important. Education was important. Yeah. And uh, what, what went on to be something that really built me as a person was the importance of that human element, one person to another. And it's really curated my life going forward throughout, throughout my whole life, which I, I'm hoping is not even half over yet. So I grew up in New York City, and I went to uh, high school in, uh, in a private school in New York. So my parents, even though they did not have a lot of money, felt it super important to go to a really good school so that sure. I would have possibilities in the future. So that was good. I was always a bit of an entrepreneur during high school. I had a number of small businesses that I did. I, was in the, I made T-shirts, and I sold them at rock and roll shows and whatever. You have to realize it was the 70s at the time. Yeah. So it was kind of the hippie days. In, in New York City and in America. And then uh, after high, at the end of high school, uh, I had become interested in agriculture for some reason. I don't particularly know, I don't really know why. I had had a, we have a home in the country and I had uh, had a garden, but for some reason agriculture seemed intriguing to me. And so I decided I would go and live in Israel for a year on a oh. kibbutz, which is sort of a, a communal living space. Uh, and I spent a year there. And uh, when I came home, I went, to, I, got a, uh, I went to the University of Massachusetts, which was the number one agricultural school in uh, the United States. And I got a full degree in agriculture, a, a two-year degree. Okay. And, but I, you know, along the way, I realized this really, there's no future in it. I, did not, I could not see what my future was going to be. And I had, um, during the war, my father had adopted a young young boy at the age okay. of eight years old whose parents had been killed and uh he survived the war and my parent my parents sent him to america to be raised by foster parents and then when they moved to america he came to live with them and he was an engineer but oh. he went on to become a very successful businessman so even though he's many many years older than me i just actually came from texas i went to visit him he's 93 years old um he was sort of a very, he was sort of a, uh, he, he became a very prominent businessman in the oil business and in the stock market. And oh, so after two years of getting this agricultural degree, he said, you know what, enough is enough. We sort of looked at each other as brothers, but also like an older uncle because he's 30 plus years older than I am. Yeah. He said, it's time to get down to business, right? I want you to go back to this university and get a degree in business and finance and you're going to, and then you will come and work for me. So wanting to be successful, wanting to be comfortable, uh, I said, okay, I always listened to him because he... Uh, he he's almost a mentor. He was a big yeah. time mentor for me. And um, by that point, he had already done a number... He was a corporate raider. So he had done a number of big takeovers during the 70s on Wall Street. So he's quite well. Um, and so I went back to college and I spent the next three years getting a degree in international finance and business. And so I finished college... I moved back to New York City and I started to trade commodities. I became very interested in commodities. And so I, um, he had given me $1,500 and I started trading orange juice futures and uh, lumber and a number of other commodities back in the day on the SIBO. And, uh, and that was very exciting for me. I liked the action. I liked, yeah. I liked the gambling part of it. And so I turned $1,500 into about $45,000. Oh, wow. Trading mostly orange juice futures. It's kind of like <laughs> a trading places story, right? And you were that, just trading for yourself, I was right? That's your myself. own money. I was getting a master's in business at Baruch University in New York in the evening. I was uh, 
trading commodities during the day, and then I also opened up a record store in Greenwich Village. And hu- so you were a hustler. I, I mean, a, you still are. I was a hustler, yeah. absolutely. I, I, let's call it an entrepreneur. <laughs> yes. so, um, I, uh, so I opened up a beautiful record store that was modeled after a European record store. We had an African art gallery. We had a coffee bar. We had a, a live music in the back, and then we sold records out front. And it was incredibly fun. It was very exciting for me. I loved, I loved the action. I've always got, been somebody yeah. who liked to be where the action is. And so uh, I did this for about a year and a half, and then it was not successful. There were a number of reasons within business, within the record business, that made it uh, unsustainable. And um, it was the early 1980s, and I had sort of gotten myself in a little bit of uh, trouble in business. It was time to sort of move on. And so I had a friend who uh, ran an oil company in the People's Republic of Benin in West Africa. And uh, which used to be called Dahomey. And Dahomey was a country in the armpit of Africa where a lot of amazing natural resources, oil comes from diamonds, gold, big business, and also uh, slavers, slaves come from there, voodoo comes from there. So it was one of the powerful countries within the African continent. So I went there and I spent a year and a half there um, being the accountant for this Norwegian oil company. So I was always good with numbers, although I never yeah. liked accounting. But I, I needed to get away. I needed a job. Mm. And so I studied. It was the beginning of computers, right? 1983. There were no oh, computers yeah. yet. It was just Lotus 1, 2, 3. It was the beginning of the original spreadsheet with computers. So I studied it on the plane over. I ended up getting a job for this company. And I stayed for about a year and a half. In 1985, I came back to New York. Once again, my older brother, my mentor, said it's time to get a real job, (laughs) stop messing around. And so my father, who was by then a very well-known doctor, had a number of patients who ran brokerage firms. One of them was the market maker for AT&T, and one of them was a uh, senior partner at Cowan & Company, which was a brokerage firm that later got taken over by Societe Generale. And so I got a summer job as a teletypist for Cowan & Company on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. The minute I walked on the floor, so as as you may know, um, there's no training for the job of working on the floor, right? No, you learn on the spot. You you work, you put your feet in the fire, you work, you've got to pay your dues, you start out, it's kind of like a caste system. You start out as a teletypist or a squad, a runner, then you become a clerk, then you become a... um, Uh, After you become a clerk, you become a retail clerk, institutional clerk, and your goal is to become a broker, right? To have a seat on the stock exchange, that's your end goal. And so it would often take 12 to 15 years to become a broker because it was a job nobody wanted to give up. It was very lucrative. It was very exciting. And so I started as a teletypist. I moved on to become an option clerk, retail clerk, institutional clerk, and I happened to be in the right place at the right time. First of all, the minute I got down to the floor, I knew it was for me. The adrenaline, the action, you know, it's not for everybody, right? Mm -hmm. People who need time to have a coffee and wake up and sit and read the paper and all that, that's not the floor of the exchange. Realize that Wall Street has many different parts to it. 
upstairs are the, uh, the investment bankers and the portfolio managers, but people who train and work on the floor of the exchange are more of the real hot action people. Yeah. And that was more part of my personality. I so can the tell. Minute, the minute I arrived <laughs> there, I loved it. And I knew this was my, gonna be my job forever mm. and ever and ever. So I, I followed, went through the ranks, yeah. and I was lucky. Uh, one guy got fired, one guy died, one guy uh, moved on to another company, and in two and a half years, I went from teletypist to broker. Two and a half years? Two and a half years. Oh, wow, I, instead I, of 12. Instead of 12. I was good at what I did. I was very lucky. I was in the right place at the right time. I got to say that. But also, the environment was perfect for my personality, right? Yeah. I thrive on chaos. I love the action. I love numbers, and I love the people game because the floor of the exchange, it's all about people, right? Mm -hmm. It's about how do you buy and sell stock, and how do you get the best price for people? It's like if you are in a casino and you are um, playing blackjack, you're playing with other players and the dealer, right? Same thing with the market. Yeah. You're trading with other brokers and the market maker. And if you're good with that and you don't, everyone doesn't know what you're doing and you're kind of sly and you're working the game, you can be a good broker. It turned out I was a good broker. So I got my seat in the April, April 9th of 1988. So the crash of 1987, I was still a clerk. And that yeah. really, that was a place that kind of where you cut your teeth, as they say. Because yeah. the, that day, Black Monday, mm -hmm. was the busiest day in history to that date. It was the largest crash uh, in history after 1929. And uh, I clerked it, and I made no errors. And we, we although it was a devastating day for the yeah. market and the economy, sure. I did really well at my job. And that kind of catapulted me into becoming a broker. So I got my seat on April 9th, I believe it was, 1988. And uh, I stayed at Cowan & Company. So I, I was given a seat on the stock exchange. Mm -hmm. I, rep I was called a house broker. And, uh, and I, had, I, had, I had gone, even though it took me a shorter time than most people, I had really gone through the ranks and I had learned all the different jobs and I was well liked by people. And uh, I, had a, I had a good rapport with the market makers and all the other brokers and whatnot. So I, I knew this was a place that I was comfortable in and that I could really thrive. So uh, my career, so that's how I got to Wall Street. Right? I mean, my career has changed over the years. I've always been a broker. Yeah. Uh, I was a broker for Cowan, then I was a broker for, um, I went into convertible arbitrage. So convertible is a, so when you issue stock, there's common stock and then there's preferred stock. But if you need to raise capital for more, more ventures, they, they have a thing called convertible preferred stock. It offers you a much higher dividend, okay? Mm -hmm. So when you, when, you, when you split stock or issue preferred stock, the value of the stock gets smaller. Yeah. And if you don't want that to happen, but you still need to raise capital, you issue convertible preferred, which is stock that has a high dividend, uh, but is also convertible to the common stock. So it has inherent value. So, I mean, it's a wonderful trade too because there's a, you get to write many tickets and make a lot of money. And so I traded convertible arbitrage for a number of years. And then over the years, I moved from, from different places. I, I worked for Asia and Company and I worked uh, for a number of independent firms on Wall Street. And, uh, and you know, and I, there, were, there were periods of times where I was successful. There were periods of times along the way you know, I met my wife, I ended up having two children, and, um, but life was challenging, you know, I mean, it was challenging, you know, just as a person growing up in New York, um, you know, I had, uh, the, my family was incredibly important, um, 
uh, I, um, but I loved what I did and I loved coming to work every day. So that never faltered, right? I, I traveled a lot. I did a number of different things. I always sort of had a side hustle besides what I did on Wall Street. And then I think in 2000, so also you have to realize that the nature of the markets changed depending on the economy. Yeah. And obviously we had the crash of 87. Yeah. We had the bubble of 2000. We had the financial crisis of 2007. Uh, 2008, and then we had, uh, obviously, uh, COVID, yeah. uh, right? So we've seen ago. different crises along the way, and I survived my way through them on Wall Street. I, uh, you know, even though I changed jobs a number of times, I was still quite, quite well-liked, uh, and I, I, I kept my job even though I moved from company to company. Yeah. It was just a function of the way the markets were trading. During 2006, after the financial crisis, it was very hard. It was a real struggle to make money on Wall Street. It was very difficult for a broker because yeah. uh, so many people lost their jobs and yeah. so many people were struggling and the markets took a big hit, right? It took nine years to get back to even. So Wall Street definitely ran into some serious obstacles, as did I as a broker. I lost a lot of customers. I lost a lot of um, accounts. Yeah. And so basically, but I knew that I wasn't willing to give up on mm. the job and I knew that this was a job I loved and I really wasn't clear that I could I wanted to do anything else. So in 2006 I was struggling and things were things were not working and I ended up spending 3 years going to work. The business dried up a lot on the floor for independent brokers like myself. I see. And basically I, I realized that I was going to struggle for a while and I, my wife had a job. She was a a career woman. She was a documentary mm -hmm. filmmaker and quite successful. And so I just said, you know what, I'm just going to fight my way through it. And I uh, went to work for three years making very little money, but I just kind of faked it. I just uh, went in every day, and even though I wasn't making a lot of money, right. I kept grinding and grinding and grinding, hoping that I'd be able to rebuild my empire and my business. And in about 2008, I ran into a broker who I had known on Wall Street, who was a well-known broker. I, I, I met him on the subway on the way to work one morning, okay. and I didn't tell anybody, but I was not making any money. Right. I just showed up for work and mm -hmm. acted as if I was making money. And because uh, I knew that no opportunity, and this is a good point for your audience, I knew that no opportunity, look, we, we learn from success and failure. I believe I've learned a lot more from failure than success. Life doesn't always give, you know, if life gives you lemon, lemons, you make lemonade, right? Yeah. So I, I, I knew that uh, I just had to keep going, right? Yeah. Sometimes the only way out is through. And so I just kept fighting, 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 and I knew no opportunity was going to find me hiding under the covers no. in my bedroom. Nobody was knocking on the door. So I said, I'm going to go to work and go to work until something comes. I got to go keep my eyes open and look for the signals for success. And I ran into a broker on the uh, subway and he said, how you doing? And for some reason, I just decided to be honest with him. And I said, you know, I'm struggling. I'm not making any money. And he goes, you know what? I need a broker on the floor. He oh. had been on the floor for many, many years. Okay. Uh, and he goes, you know what? I need a broker. And, uh, and I told him what the business model. I had built a trading model, which I still do to this day, around market on close imbalances. And he said, I love that idea. How about we, you and I, we get into business together? And we traded on, uh, up until three weeks ago. He and I were in business from 2006 until three weeks ago. Oh. We kept in business, and he, we became great friends. Yeah. We became business partners, and so, um, so I made it. I got my yeah. business back, and then once again, it grew to the point where you know I'm still very successful. I mean, I can I can go on forever about this story. I've I've done so many things since then, but that's my journey to Wall Street.
So when you said um, brokers were struggling, they weren't making a lot of money, was it because they have less clients, less and less clients want to buy and sell stocks? Or you know, you know what, what does it mean? There, I think there were probably a bunch of different reasons. The okay. economy was faltering. Yeah. We had just gone through a major financial crisis. Yeah. They called it the great financial crisis. Right there, the banks were bailing everybody out. Nobody had any money. People were losing their jobs. 25,000 people were laid off from Lehman Brothers. Yeah. So in the industry, everyone was losing their jobs. And so there was a lot less trading going on. I see. And no so one has the money more, to buy. Well, right. people were just buying and selling less stocks. People uh, were struggling. People had lost a lot of money. I see. And when things get rough, they tend to really pull back and they don't give out as much. I was what's yeah. called an independent $2 broker. So normally when, when things are flourishing, then there's enough to give everybody business. But when things are hard, they're much less likely to give out order flow. So they keep I it in-house. So there was less opportunity because as a broker, I used to get overflow business, right? So when there's less to give out, there's less business to be had. Oh, okay. That makes sense. Okay, so in which year did you were you given the nickname the Einstein of Wall Street? Is that quite recent? Yeah, or? yeah, it is quite recent actually. So there was a woman named Erin Burnett. Erin Burnett used to work for CNBC. Okay. And uh, she worked with CNBC with a guy named Mark Haynes, who he passed away, and Erin Burnett went on to work for CNN. She's still at CNN. But uh, she was the one who called me Einstein. It was not Einstein of Wall Street yet. Oh. But um, she called me Einstein, obviously, because I look like Einstein. Yeah, you do. <laughs> and, uh, and jokingly, Mark Haynes, who was a very well-known financial reporter for CNBC, used to sit outside the stock exchange and used to always joke that where he would sit out on the uh, fire pump smoking a cigarette, and I would walk into work, and I always had very, uh, you know, boisterous hairdo. <laughs> and so he would always say, if, I'm having, if Einstein's having a good hair day, then the market's going to go up. And if he's not, the market's going to go down. That kind of developed the persona of Einstein of Wall Street. But I was actually given the name by a, uh, by a, a woman named Adrienne Russo. I'm sure she'd be surprised that I'm bringing her up. It was a woman I hired to do social media. Social media started to happen at the time. And okay. I was trying to build this brand around Einstein. And uh, she said, why don't we nickname you the Einstein of Wall Street? And it took. And that kind of took off. I mean, it started with an article on BuzzFeed. It started with a lot of photographs all okay. over. You know, when I started on on, Aug, uh, on April April 8th, I think, 2007, okay. uh, was the first time a photograph was taken of me. And it was on the front page of the newspaper, the New York Daily News. And it was me with my arms up in the air. And, and it, it, it became a big deal. The internet was not a big deal yet, but mm. it, the photo went everywhere. Yeah. And the next day, uh, the New York Post... That's the competitor's newspaper in New York. We have the Daily News and the yeah. Post. Okay. The competitor's newspaper wrote an article saying, who is that guy on the cover of the Daily News? And so they did an article. They interviewed me and did an article uh, about me okay. as the Einstein of Wall Street. And sort of there had always been one guy who the news people used to take a picture of. His name was Alan Gershowitz, and he just had, re he was retiring on that day that they took the picture of me. And he said, oh, perfect. I, I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to pass the baton to yeah. Peter Tuckman, and from now on, you guys take a picture of him, and that started my career. Okay, but it started with BuzzFeed and then two news outlets, 
and then, then and then the, look, they started. To, my, my, there was a, there, I started getting front pages all over the yeah. country, thousands of them. And then they they took pictures that went global all over the world. Yeah. And then many a number of years later, they started asking me to speak mm -hmm. uh, about the markets. I never thought I had very much to say about the markets, and I, I don't talk about. If you notice, you and I are a little different than a lot of the other people. We we have a different take on the market, and so what I my analysis of the market was a little bit different than most, and that. I started out by, um, I had a TV show in Germany that I did, I used to do with a German accent. I don't speak German, but I, my parents were European, they spoke many languages, my parents spoke 11 languages, and so I grew up very good with accents. So I used to joke around in different accents, so I did a finance TV show with a German accent, and that became very popular on YouTube, it kind of went viral. Oh, really? And it became known as the Einstein of Wall Street in Germany. And that was sort of the beginning of my other career. Is that the name of the show? Inside the Wall Street, or? The show was called Inside Versthof. It was a finance station in Germany, and they kind of gave me a little bit of a free reign. They were uh, to do what I wanted to do, so I did the show with a German accent. It was very funny. Oh, wow. And you were commentating on the market, or? I did, I did it, and I, I analyzed the market on, uh, on the cl at the end of every day. Mm. It's interesting, eh? The whole world is so interested in the uh, in the U.S. stock market specifically. Even though in Europe they have obviously the Amsterdam Stock Exchange, Correct. Stockholm, everywhere. Everyone's yeah, interested in U.S. markets. True. You know what? Look, it has a lot to do with the times, right? You know, I think that was the beginning of a time where uh, all eyes were on the stock market. It happened again during COVID. It happened yeah. during the financial crisis when people are struggling then people look to the markets to try and make money or to stop losing money. And that was one of the uh, things that happened. Okay. And, and has, since you've been given that name, Einstein of Wall Street, has, there, has that affected your life? Because oh. I'm, I'm sure people stop you on the sidewalks or take pictures or talk to you. How, how has that positively or negatively affected your life? You know what? It, for me, it's been really a wonderful gift because I love people. I love interacting with people. I, I've become famous. I've become an influencer yeah. on social media. You know, I've, I have an academy where we teach people to trade. I do motivational speaking all over the world about markets and about other things. Um, and so my, I built a brand around the Einstein of Wall Street. You know, we came out with NFTs and I, we, 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 I teach, I do webinars for colleges all over the United States. Uh, so it's given me a brand new career. My face is, is actually is worth something I get paid for my face to be used by brokerage firms all over Europe. My, there's a company in, uh, in Germany called IG. It's the largest brokerage firm in, in Europe. Okay. And so the, 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 uh, the, um, their advertising is, they use my face to be the ad. So uh, yeah, it's become a whole nother career. So I, I, I love the fact, I'm having a lot of fun with it. Since you received the nickname and over so many years, and remind me again, how long, it's been 40 years at NICE? I've been on NICE since 85, 85. so that's four, 38 years. So how's ha how has your role at NICE changed over time? Obviously you started as a type, uh, typist, teletypist, tele right. and now you're a broker. But you know what, I, 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 I get the question, it's changed a lot. You have to realize that everybody's jobs have changed with the, with the incurrence of uh, incursion of uh, technology, right? Everybody's yeah. job, publishing, uh, uh, advertising, uh, brokering, finance, everything. You know, when you bring uh, technology into a situation, 
human beings are outsourced and things change, right? So things have changed a lot. I've had to reinvent myself many, many times. The business on the floor of the exchange with technology, with algorithms, has changed a lot. So I had to bob and weave. I don't have the same kind of customers I used to, even though recently I've, I've brought back the trading strategy that I built many, many years ago. I still do that and it's very successful. But you know, I started doing education. I started running an academy to teach young people to trade. I started to do motivational speaking. So my role and my job have completely changed. I like to have multiple streams of revenue. I like to do so many different things. So while I'm using my brand to build my recognition, I do a lot of things on social media. I'm an influencer on Instagram and Twitter and TikTok. You know, I've done a lot of things as far as trying to educate new young people about the markets. Uh, I, I, I'm working with a lot of these new young, I, I'm a big proponent of, of, of trying to break the ceilings for women in finance. So I'm on the board of many, many different women-owned companies on Wall Street. One of them is called Alenia. It's a trading app for young women, first-time women investors. Um, I'm on the board of a number of different companies uh, that relate to women. Boss Beauties is a uh, so is a is a uh, company that empowers young women scholarship and, and internships for young women uh, to create a safe space for high schools and colleges. So look, it's opened the doors for me. Even though my role on Wall Street has changed, I still go into work every day. I trade the markets. My son is my partner. That's one of the greatest thing that's happened. Is you know in the old days, family businesses were Wall Street was built on fathers and sons and uncles and family businesses. When I got to Wall Street in 1985, there were 70 market-making firms that were families on the floor of the exchange. Now there's only three firm market-making firms left and none of them, my son and I, are the last father and son team on Wall Street. So the doors have opened, look, and, and it's, it's sort of been, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a real, uh, I like, to be motivated, I like to be inspired by things, and so, and I like to look at the big picture. Yeah. So all along the way, even though I still keep my day job as a broker trading the markets, lately my son has been running the business for me, and I've been focusing on social media, on mm. uh, traveling, uh, doing motivational speaking all over the world. I've spoken in Switzerland, and in Amsterdam, and uh, and in Italy. I spoke last year at the Italian Stock Exchange. So my job has changed. Uh, I've had to reinvent myself many, many times. But I love advertising and branding. I love the social media aspect to my life. And I love trading. At the end of the day, trading to me is the most exciting thing in the world. It is not an easy thing to do. It no, is not the, the opportunities are not as open as they used to be. Although, to be a day trader is something that is available now, the democratization of the trading community, which happened during COVID. In the old days, you had to be a qualified investor to be able to trade the market. That meant that the money you invested, if you lost it all, would have no effect on your standard of living for five years. Well, very few people can have that, except rich people. Yeah. So what happened with Robinhood and, and TD Ameritrade and all these new tr uh, uh, um, trading apps mm -hmm. meant that Basically, anybody with an iPhone and a hundred dollars and fractional investing, anybody with an iPhone and a hundred dollars could trade the market. So that's opened up huge doors. But as I said to you earlier, you know, if I wanted to be a pilot, I wouldn't just grab the keys and hop on a plane and hope I could fly. Yeah, yeah. So I've spent a lot of my time trying to educate and teach people. Now that the barriers to entry are down for anybody to become a trader, 
I want them to have all the benefits of what I know to try and teach them and educate them so that they can do the best job they can. So do you personally invest or trade stocks for yourself? No, I do not. So one of the reasons I don't is because I trade 347 stocks for my customers every day. Yeah. And historically, over the years, I'm not allowed to be in a stock for myself personally and customers in a 30-day period. And I since, see. And since the strategy I built involves every stock that's in the S&P 500 that's traded on the NYSE, it's very difficult for me to find a stock that I'm not in every day that I could invest in. Also, for me, you know, money is a funny thing. If I'm worried about my own personal investments, yeah. I would not be focused on the, the, my fiduciary responsibility for, for my customer. I see. And so I make enough of a good living trading for other people that I did not choose to invest in the stock market. Uh, recently, I think I inherited a little money and I gave it to somebody to manage for me. But, um, uh, but for me, it's more important to focus on my... I'm a customer man. I like, I like to make my customer happy. Have you ever Googled yourself? Your own name, oh, Peter Tuckman? Oh, absolutely. I yeah? get so according to Google, I'm worth... <laughs> I'm worth $1.5 billion. Yeah, I was about to ask you yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when when my, my wife, unfortunately, who passed away a month ago, when that came out, uh, that came out maybe three months ago. Oh. Uh, some guy interviewed me uh, on Wall Street, and apparently, I don't know, you know, Google, they'll write anything. But uh, <laughs> he posted the interview, and he said, Peter Tuckman is worth, Einstein and Wall Street is worth $1.5 billion. And my wife saw it, the, the post, and she called me into the bedroom. She was already not feeling very well. And she goes, is there something I need to know? I didn't know you were worth $1.5 billion. I said, sweetie, I'm not, trust me, I'm not hiding anything from you. Right. It's not true. Is that why you asked That's the question? That's why I was about yeah. to ask. I'm like, you know yeah, is that so, true? I didn't know brokers make that. I know you guys make a lot of money, but I didn't know you make that much. So yesterday, as I walked out of the stock exchange, some guy walked up to me with a microphone. Okay. And you can, if you look on TikTok, it, came, it went viral this morning. Oh. And he said to me, what do you do for a living? I said, I'm a trader on the floor of the stock exchange. He yeah. said, I hate when people ask you how much money you make. It's, it's a rude question. Mm -hmm. So he said, well, how much money do you make? So I said, I said, Jokingly, I said $10 billion a year. He <laughs> says, really? Well, what's the best job of, what's the best part of your job? So I said, making all the money is what I said. And so that he put it on TikTok and I guess it went viral oh because God. I came into work this morning and everyone's going 10 billion, 10 billion. So anyway, look, if you Google me, you will see a lot of wonderful photographs. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of pictures of me with, with famous people. That's very fun for me. I love it. You know, I'm a, I don't go out and chase it, but as a broker on the exchange and the most notable person within social media, whenever there's a celebrity comes to the floor, they most of them know who I am because everybody They've has money. They've seen your pictures. Exactly. Yeah. Everybody has money in the market, so they usually come up to me, and I'm kind of a, a chill guy, so we usually have a lot of fun. We meet and talk. There's a very famous photograph of, uh, if you Google Shaq kisses tiny trader, uh, there's a picture of Shaquille O'Neal, the basketball <laughs> player, kissing me on the head. Oh my God, I need right. to see this it's photo a very, if you, it, It's the first thing that pops up on, on Google. Uh, if it, you type in Shaq and Trader, and it's a picture of him grabbing me by the head like a basketball and kissing me. So there's a lot of fun things if you Google me. It tells a little bit of the story of my life. There's a fun Wikipedia page. Wait, can I see it? Oh my God! <laughs> He's holding my head like it's yeah, a basketball. Oh my God. 
You're half his size. Yeah, like, he's I'm more huge. less than half his size. Yeah. I could fit in his pocket. We, so now we know a lot about the Peter Tuckman at work. What, what's the Peter like outside of work? Peter, what do you do for fun after the market's closed? Uh, that's a good question. So what do I like to what do I do after work? I'm a real family man. I have two children. My son, 20, at, uh, Benny, is 29. Uh, also who, a broker with you. He's also okay. a broker, and he's basically run my partner now and runs my business. I have a daughter who's 25, uh, 26, I think now, um, who just got a degree in, uh, uh, she got a, uh, she went to Connecticut College and got a degree in social administration or something. She's very interested in politics and in saving the world. She got a degree in saving the world, let's say that. Okay. Her name is Very Luce. important degree too. Very important. Yeah. She loves policy and she loves changing the world and doing the right thing. And her name is Lucy Tuckman, she's wonderful. And so I uh, spend a lot of time with my children. That's super important to me. And uh, uh, up until recently, uh, I was a real family man. I spent most of my time with my wife we like to travel, we like to, uh, uh, what else did we love to cook? We love to um, listen to music together and we were together for 33 years and she was absolutely wonderful. She unfortunately got cancer a number of years ago and uh, we treated it quite well and she was cancer free for three years and then last August the cancer came back oh. and uh, since January of this year the cancer became very aggressive and ended up she lost her life on August 9th. So that's just four weeks yeah, ago. It's recent, I'm sorry yeah, to hear Yeah, it's very that. recent. So um, I took probably one day off, but I realized that nothing good was gonna happen at home. It's just, you know, it's such a, she was my best friend. And so, and you know, very close to the kids and to me obviously. And so it's, you know, sitting at home and, and, and wallowing in my grief doesn't really do that much for me. So as I love what I do and I love the people around me, I decided to just, you know, put on my big boy pants and get back to work. So I came back to work quite quickly. Um, uh, so uh, that's what I did. But uh, so what do I do? I love to ski. I love to play tennis. I have a house in the country uh, where I go. I love to swim. I love to garden. I love to climb uh, mountains. Uh, I love to travel. I've been many, many places. I, uh, I don't think I told you as part of the story. I went in 1980. Three, I ended up moving to, oh, I did mention it, I went to West Africa and lived in the People's Republic of Benin for a couple of years. I, and, you know, I, I love jazz music. I play uh, the saxophone. So music is important. Traveling is important. Climbing, skiing, tennis. So, you know, and I'm just a very chill guy. I don't really love to go out and, and party a lot. I, you know, that's not me. I mean, I have to admit, you know, back in the 80s, I was definitely, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't a really uh, bad guy like the Wolf of Wall Street, but I, I had some of you the had fun. I had some of the qualities of the Wolf of Wall Street, and uh, so, but you know, a big part of a big part of what who I am at work is a big part of who I am at home, right? I mean, I spend a lot of my time working on educating people, inspiring and motivating people. I love art. I have yeah. a gallery at the New York Stock Exchange on the sixth floor. I mentor a lot of young people in finance, in, in, in life. I'm a bit of a life coach to a many people. I've had people who have mentored me and helped me along the way, and so I like to sort of uplift people up. Uh, mm -hmm. So a lot of my life is spent doing that. I mean, I, uh, I have many artists who I mentor, and there's a, I, I have so many projects that I'm involved in. 
I love marketing and advertising, so I do a lot of stuff around that. I love my, my life within social media, right? As a Instagram influencer, I do a lot of fun things there. Yeah. Um, as you described, I am, re I mean, I'm noticed on, I'm recognized on the street. That's a new thing for me, I would for say, sure. over the last four or five years. So that's a lot of fun. And uh, so I've, ta I've developed this platform uh, on social media where I get a lot of attention and it gives me the opportunity to really inspire and motivate people. For me, you know, success is about money and fulfillment and, and purpose are, are very important to me. And that's about affecting other people in a positive way, right? Yeah. I'm not about, I don't need cash and prizes. I don't have fancy cars and you know, I don't take pictures of me, you know, lying on the front of a Bugatti or a Lamborghini <laughs> uh, with lots of cash. I'm much more of a, pers a people person and a humanist. That's something I learned from my father, that the touch of another human being and communicating with them and trying to, you know, for me, somebody, when you die, the, the more, the, a life that's a, a life of fulfillment is more important having uplifted, uplifted other people to be their best self than just, you know, dying something, dying with a whole bunch of money and a bunch of toys. So I, I thrive off of, uh, of the uh, attention I get on social media and the opportunity to motivate and inspire other people, and that's my life. I yeah. go to work every day, and at home I'm, I'm working also. I'm a bit of a workaholic. If I can say anything to anybody, one of the regrets I have having just lost my wife was that I did not take enough time to spend with her. You know, uh, you know, there were often times where she would say, let, why don't you take off a Friday and a Monday and let's go hang out? And I would say, work is way too important, I can't do that. And now in retrospect, I regret that, you know, that uh, I, would, I, would, I would really love to have a Friday and a Monday, you know, to hang out with her. So if I can tell anybody what I've learned from this uh, mm. experience of losing somebody you love, is don't take work that seriously. Never lose the opportunity to spend time with family when you can, because you don't really, we don't know what the future's gonna bring. So, and just, you know, and being with your, your, the people that you love is super important. Yeah, and thank you so much for using your platform for such positive messages. Yeah, you have a great Pleasure. reach, and people not only learn from you, they also feel inspired, they and do. to eventually live and hopefully trade and work like the way you do as well. I appreciate it, thank you. Yeah, yeah I like to share this, like, as I said to you, it's not my line, but it's a great line. If you find something you love to do, you'll never work a day in your life. I love my life, except for obviously what's happened to me recently. And so, and, and I know that everybody's struggling. We just went through COVID, that's, you know, I come from a background where my parents struggled, right? I mean, you, lot, you look yes. at me, you know, it's, it's not far away, it's, it's one generation ago, my parents had their whole families murdered and my grandmother was shot in the head with, by a gun. You know, mm. they went through, you know, one of the worst pieces of history. Yeah. And so they, life is very precious. And they taught me that growing up. And so, you know, and uh, so I value that. Life is very precious and it's super important. And that's something that you can share with other people. You know, just having a lot for me is not that important. Obviously, I take care of my children to the best of my ability, and I want them to be happy and also find that 
but you know there's nothing better than than experiencing joy with someone else you know we from the trading point of view when we get it when, when my partner david green and i get on a phone call with a student and they were struggling or lost their job and now they're trading and they were losing money and now they're making money it's the greatest thing in the world or someone was you know struggling with mental illness or or, or depression or something like that and i was able to just kind of put make their day a little brighter and give them a little hope right uh, um then that's worth it's all worthwhile do you think you'll ever maybe not retire completely but <laughs> retire just a little bit where you have more free time you know what I, you're juggling I so many projects right you know what i don't know i mean for me you know lying around doing nothing may, maybe i would i'm trying to incorporate that taking off some time with working it's so funny right so the after my wife died i thought okay i gotta i gotta change it up now i'm you know it's because it's so depressing for me and i'm so sad and and it's so dark that i thought i would you know as opposed to just go travel i thought i would travel and and work and you okay. know and do some motivational speaking and and yeah. talk about trading and whatnot so whether i will I, I don't think so i'm a bit of a workaholic i mean i think i will hopefully learn from you know the fact that i did probably work and you know and not enough pay enough attention to the fact that i could have taken more time off when i had the chance um but you know i, I love i love every day pretty much and uh so you know and i love what i do so i i think i'll hang out there okay <laughs> thank you so much for sharing your story my pleasure what's the one message that you want our audience to learn as a takeaway as a final well, takeaway from this okay. podcast. I mean, I think I probably incorporated it into your questions. The questions were very good. I appreciate that. Is that somebody needs to find out, find something they love to do. That's yeah. the important thing. That there is nothing you can't do if you try. That we learn more from failure than success. That success needs to be uh, gauged by purpose and fulfillment, not by, by uh, cash and prizes, Yeah. right? These are the things that are important to me, you know, and that, you know, uh, surround yourself by people who, who lift you up and that you can lift up, right? Uh, that's super important. Uh, people who want good for you and that someone you can help. Um, you know, I've seen it. There are a lot of people out there who are big mentors to me, who have committed their lives to helping others. There's a guy mm. named Charlie in the Dream Machine, young guy who's had a lot of success. Then he he fell he fell off the uh, the pedestal and really struggled, and now has committed his life to helping people who are are are, are uh, you know on the on the bad side of luck. Uh, there's a young there's a these two brothers, the uh, Snyder brothers, who spend their lives committed to charity and feeding uh, the homeless people. There are, mm. you know, people who are struggling in my business who would love to be able to uh, do better. So all that stuff is, is super important. Yeah. So, you know, uh, don't think that there's no door you can't knock down. Look, there's nothing wrong with trying something. It's not a matter of how many times you, you, uh, you get knocked down. It's a matter of how many times you get, you get back, uh, you know, brush yourself off and, and get back up. So don't think that you can't do anything knock on every door the worst thing that's going to happen is they'll say no and then you just move on to the next door and know that no opportunity is going to come knocking on your door you got to go out there and find it yeah it's interesting because people talk about wall street as if it's something really cold right a lot of numbers stocks flying around right. it's all about cash and money like you said but 
You are extremely warm, welcoming, and the messages you send to all the audience watching is extremely motivating mm -hmm. as well. So thank you so much for showing us that there is some warm, warmth on you Wall Street. I, I appreciate it. It's yeah. not, I don't know if it really is it, 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 a lot. It's a lot of it on Wall Street. Mm -hmm. People have come to me and said, you know, said like, you know, you, you well, somebody recently, oh, oh, it was, yeah, there's a very big influencer on social media who came to me and wanted to do a video with me. And he said, you know what, we, we, you've, we've taken notice of you because, you know, most people are, are pretty crusty and, and sort of stiff on Wall Street. And yeah. you, you have committed yourself to really spreading the message of, of hope and, and education uh, in a different way uh, from someone who's, you know, who's been around as long as you. You're a lot warmer than people think of Wall Street. And sure. that's, that's, yeah, that's who I am. Well, thank you so much, Peter. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. Wow, I know we've all seen Peter's personality and social media posts online. However, I never would have imagined to be able to hear firsthand his personal account of his entire story. Stories about his career, experiences in and outside of the stock market, and of course about his family, who he holds very dearly to his heart. I hope you enjoyed listening to his inspirational story as much as I did. Please feel free to share your thoughts down below in the comments, or you can tell Peter yourself on his Instagram. <laughs>